Well, good morning, church. It's good to see each of you here today. I want to encourage you, if you've not already done so, to find Genesis chapter 32 in your Bible. Genesis 32. And we're going to be reading in verse 24 in a moment. Fighting with God. Fighting with God. Have you ever fought with God? Have you ever struggled with Him? Has there been a moment in your life where you realized that the circumstance that you were experiencing was actually one that God had arranged? We're reading this morning about someone who went through just that kind of experience, a man named Jacob. And if you found your places, Genesis 32, would you follow along as I read in verse 24? Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. The socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he called and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and had prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Father, we thank you for the many ways in which you work to change our lives. This is one that I don't believe we thought about very much. And so, Father, as we open your word and as we read about Jacob, we pray that you would enable us to see ourselves in this story and to recognize what you're doing in our lives at this very moment. We bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in elementary school, I learned some valuable lessons about fighting. I went to a parochial school from the fifth grade to the eighth grade a Catholic school, private school in Little Rock, St. Edwards Elementary. In fact, it was just a few blocks from the Baptist building, and it was kind of ironic. It's a long story. I won't, I won't digress, but, but I went to this uh, Catholic school from the fifth grade to the eighth grade, and, and it was a strict school in terms of discipline, and they didn't, they were no nonsense, and, um, and I actually was an altar boy for a while. And we had, we went to church, we went to mass every morning. And I was an altar boy every morning, but a lot of mornings I was. And, and uh, but it, when I was sitting out in the pew with my grade, with my, my friends, uh, the boys sat together on one side, the girls sat together on the other side of the aisle. 
and we were to look forward, and we were not to talk to one another, and a bomb could go off in the back of the church, but you didn't look behind you. Because when you did, one of the nuns, one of the sisters would whack you on the back of the head. I learned that by experience. And to this day, as your pastor, if I'm sitting here and there's a noise in the back, I cannot look to the back. It's just ingrained in me. And, um, and if you did something, if you got caught doing something wrong, you would get whacked. And I usually got caught. I remember one time just kind of running through the hallway, and I discovered that the little tiles in the ceiling, that if you jumped high enough, you could tap them, and they would kind of bounce up and bounce back down. And I also discovered that when I did that, if a nun was nearby, I would get whacked in the back of the head. One day we were lining up after recess to go back inside the building, and this, uh, they had some kids there that were right off the streets. They were, some of them were tough, but it was part of the ministry of that particular school. And there was one kid bigger than me, one of those street kids, one of those street toughs that cut in line, about two kids in front of me. And with the strong sense of justice that I had then and I still have today, I said, hey, you can't do that. And we disagreed. And we went to fists were flying, and, uh, and I was getting the worst of it. The kid was bigger than me. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a hand grabbed me by the back of the neck, and a hand grabbed him by the back of the neck. And it wasn't just an ordinary sister, it was Sister Hermana. Now, Sister Hermana was the principal of St. Edwards Elementary for many years. And she had hands the size of a, of a pro basketball player, and at least it seemed to me. And I was thankful, actually, because I had been getting the worst of it, and she rescued me. Until the next thing she said, which was, you two boys, I want you to go down to my office and wait for me there. And I had not had that experience, but I learned a great deal that day about fighting. I learned first not to fight with a boy that's bigger than you. I learned also that a nun is faster than a boy that's bigger than you. And she left an impression, a lasting impression, that stayed with me for a long time. I used to think our growth as Christians was like going to school, where you learned topic by topic by studying books and courses and taking tests and that sort of thing. And many of our churches are really designed that way. And, and if we're not careful, we can think that Christian growth is just that. We should be studying, but we can think it's just that. And the problem is that many of us have read and studied the Scripture, but we have not experienced the truth of that Scripture in our own lives. And it was quite a discovery for me as I got older and I realized that the way God really works in our lives to change us is not through the classroom and not through academic study, but by applying his word to our daily lives through the ups and downs of the things that we experience. He grows us in the same way that he grew the saints of old. I've met older, mature Christians, and I've wondered what was the secret of their wisdom. How did they know so much? Surely it's because of the books they read, the courses that they had taken. And I discovered as I got nearer to them, as I listened to their stories, that they had experienced God through the ups and downs of their life, often through periods of great suffering and hardship and pain. And that's the same way God that, that we see in Scripture raised up men of God and women of God in the Bible. It was not through classes and through things that they read, 
It was through exposing them to situations and to circumstances where they had absolutely no control and that stripped them of their ability to manage life. And when you and I encounter that, at least I do, I don't know about you, we struggle and we fight and we use our wits and all of our strength to manage the problems of life on our own. And somehow it never occurs to us that God is sovereign and that God is in control and that he is exposing us to circumstances that strip us of our ability to manage life, that cause us to learn that we must rely on him instead of fighting him. And I can blame all of my problems on other people if I want. I can blame them on my family. I can blame them on my spouse or my my parents or my friends. I can blame them on my boss at work. I can blame them on everyone I want to. But at some point, I need to realize that God is behind what's happening to me. And in fact, I may have made him an opponent while he is at work trying to turn a Jacob into an Israel, someone who won't fight him over and over again. And that's the thing you want to hear and you need to know. And why this may be, for some of you, the most important message you'll ever hear me share. Is if I don't pay attention to what God is doing in the circumstances around me, if I find myself with God as an adversary, and I don't learn from one particular moment in time, I am probably going to experience that same moment of having all my resources and all my ability and everything stripped away from me, not once, but again and again and again and again until God brings me to where he wants me to be. So God is at work right now in your life to bring you where he wants you to be. And this story is about how God takes Jacob, who is full of himself and egotistical and full of the devil, And how he takes a Jacob and he turns him into an Israel. This story is particularly dear to my heart. Even as a young Christian, I identified with this man, Jacob. I can remember so many times as a young believer thinking, there's always a way. There's always a way. There's always a way I can manage my life. There's always a way I can manage this crisis. There's always a way I can manage this situation. Until I learned otherwise. There are three lessons I've learned from fighting with God that I want to share with you today. And that I see in the life of Jacob at this moment. Here's the first lesson. Lessons learned from fighting with God. Number one, I don't always know that I'm fighting with God. I don't always know that I'm fighting with God. Look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, for most of his life, Jacob had been wrestling with God. The problem is he didn't know it was God that he was wrestling with. Uh, The prophet Hosea commenting on Jacob's life in Hosea chapter 12, verse 3. Just listen to this. Hosea 12, 3. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. In his strength he struggled with God. Jacob was actually a twin. He had a twin brother named Esau. And when the two of them were, were inside Rebekah's womb, even there they fought with one another. And they fought so much and so hard that Rebekah had questions about what was going on. She had waited 20 years to have a child, and now she was about to have two, 
and they were fighting inside her womb. The Bible says, if all is well, she said, if all is well, why am I like this? If this is a blessing I've waited 20 years for, how come it's like this? And she's not the first pregnant mother that's asked that question. You have to think about that. And so she inquired of the Lord. She brought that question to the Lord. Why is this happening? And the Lord answered her, and he said, look, you've got two nations in your womb, and they're not going to get along, and they are going to fight with one another. And, uh, and so when the time came, and Esau was born, he came out first. The Bible says he was hairy all over his body, and uh, the name Esau means hairy. And the descendants, the nation that came from Esau was called Edom, which means red, so he was he was hairy and red. Uh, we know that much about him. And at the moment he was born, slightly older than Jacob, the Bible tells us that Jacob was holding on to his heel. And it's from that that the name Jacob comes from. Jacob means trickster, sneak, cheat, fraud, con man, deceiver. And this picture of a little guy hanging on to the heel of another guy and being called Jacob, I mean, this, was a, this is actually a Hebrew verb that's used in other places in the Old Testament to describe someone who deceives someone else. Jacob. You Jacob somebody when you deceive them. And, it, and it's the idea of you just standing there, you are minding your own business, and someone comes from behind you and grabs your heels out from under your feet and drops you to the ground. And Jacob was true to his name. He lived up to his name. The Bible tells us that he essentially tricked his older brother out of his birthright. The birthright was that blessing the father gave his oldest son that gave him legally all the rights to the family's possessions. There, he was the leader of the clan. And Jacob, one day when Esau was hungry, tricked him and gave him a bowl of stew in exchange for his birthright. And Esau fell for it. When it was time to pass that birthright, Jacob deceived his own father who was blind into thinking that he was Esau and got his daddy to give him the birthright blessing. When Esau heard about it, he said, my daddy's going to die one day. And when the period of mourning is over, he says, I'm going to kill Jacob. I'm going to kill him. Well, Rebecca thought it was time for her favorite son to take a trip, and she sent Jacob away and he left and he went to his uncle Laban's and he was going to stay there for 20 years and and in spite of all of that because what he got was a birthright but he never got to get anything from it he never really enjoyed anything from it he really lost everything in his efforts to get it and his efforts to get ahead and even in this experience Jacob did not change he was not changed by that experience so now he comes to Laban and his family and God raises up someone, raises up a group of people who are as crafty and as sly and as deceitful as Jacob. And, and Laban deceives Jacob into thinking he's working for the right to marry his daughter Rachel, who's younger than Leah. And he works seven years for the privilege. And when he does, on the wedding night, Laban swaps out the brides. And suddenly Jacob is married to the wrong woman, at least not the one he was after. And Jacob, uh, Laban says, well, Jacob, you've got to understand our customs. These are our customs. 
And uh, the oldest daughter has to be married before the youngest daughter. And so not having a dowry, no way to pay for anything, no way to do what culturally was required, he agrees to work another seven years in order to marry Rachel, the bride that he wanted. And after 14 years of working with him, he's now beginning to acquire some wealth. And no matter what Laban does to change the rules, the ground rules by which Jacob can acquire cattle, Jacob can acquire camels, Jacob can acquire goats, Jacob can acquire lambs, and Laban's always changing the ground rules over and over again, God blesses Jacob and he becomes extremely wealthy. And yet he's still unchanged by the experience. And then the time comes where the people around Laban, the sons of Laban, the family of Laban, and Laban himself decide, we don't really like Jacob anymore. And God told Jacob he needed to leave and go home. And so now he's very wealthy, he's very influential, he has, he has great herds and great belongings, he has, he has a ton of kids and has all of this great abundance, and he's headed back home. Now, most of it he's acquired through deceit and trickery and ruthlessness and business. He still has not changed. And then he hears that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, and he is scared to death. He prays, but he spends a lot of time trying to figure out how to save his own life. And he tells his family, he says, look, I've got to be alone. I've got to spend tonight alone, the night before he's supposed to meet Esau. I've got to spend tonight alone. And so what he does is he divides up the two groups, divides everything he has into two groups. And in the first group, he sends across the river Jabbok first, and that one has Leah in it, his least favorite wife. And then he sends over the second group, and that one has Rachel in it, his most favorite wife. And of course, the idea, and it even says it in the scripture, the thought is, is that that Esau attacked the first group. He might lose his least favorite wife, but the favorite wife could get away. Real sweet, huh? And so in all of this, he is unchanged. He is the same man, and he is finally alone, and he is afraid, and it is dark. And out of nowhere, a stranger jumps him, attacks him begins to fight him, and wrestles him to the ground. He doesn't know who it is. I have found that my toughest battles in life have not been with the devil, but have been with God. But I didn't always know it was God. And a good example is Jacob. We know this man who came out of nowhere. We know this man is the Lord. But Jacob doesn't know that. He didn't know this is the Lord. This might be Esau in a sneak attack. This might be an assassin hired by Esau to take out his brother. He had said he was going to kill him. This may just be a common bandit who's attacking him. He doesn't know who it is. Uh, the ancient uh, rabbis writing about this story theorized that the man was actually Jacob's guardian angel that attacked him, that he was so fed up with him, he attacked him. I like that. I think that's funny, but that's not who it is. Jacob certainly, whatever he thought about this guy, Jacob certainly did not think that this man was his friend. He saw him at that moment as an enemy, not as a friend. And he thought he was fighting for his life. And in a sense he was with an enemy. Now if Jacob didn't know, it was God. 
and he thought this battle was with an enemy, then you need to know that some of your greatest battles can be with God, and you may not know it, and you may think him an enemy. Times when you don't have a choice, you have to keep going, and everything in you wants to stop, and you get frustrated. Other times when you don't have a choice, you get sick, something comes in your life, you can't work, you can't do anything, and you have to stop, and everything in you wants to keep going. Other occasions when you don't have a choice, for whatever reason, you have to leave a job that you love, you have to leave a situation that you love, maybe the company closed, something happened, you didn't have a choice, you were forced to leave when you wanted to stay. Other times, when everything in you wanted to leave, and you didn't have a way out, and you were forced to stay right where you were. Times when you didn't have a choice for whatever reason, you wanted to speak up, but you had to keep your mouth shut. And other occasions where you were forced to speak, you really didn't want to say anything, but because of the circumstance, you had to speak. And in all those situations, all those situations when you were forced to say yes, but you wanted to say no, or times when you were forced to say no, and everything in you wanted to say yes, I want to do this, I want to have this, I want to go this direction, and clearly you can't. You would discover that you were upset, you were wrestling, you were angry, you were hurt, and you didn't know that in the midst of all those times that God was there as your friend and not as your enemy. So the first lesson I've learned about fighting with God is I don't always know it's God. And I get confused pretty easily about who I'm fighting with. And I have to remember that God is in control. And that for whatever reason, God in his goodness has allowed this circumstance to come into my life so that he can bring me from where I am to where he wants me to be. But there's a second lesson I've learned about God, fighting with God, and that's this. I am fighting for a win that does not exist. I am fighting for a win that really does not exist. Look at verse 25. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. Now, at some point during that long night, I can't tell you when, at some point during that long night, it occurred to Jacob who he was fighting with. He figured it out. It was not Esau. It was not a bandit. It was not an assassin. This was the Lord. And there's some clues in the text. We don't need to go into those deeply, but, but he figures it out. And, and he reaches the conclusion that it's God. Does he stop fighting? No. <laughs> He's still fighting with God. He knows it's God now, and he's still fighting with him. He thinks he can win. Now, this isn't the first time that Jacob has encountered God. There, there's two or three other occasions in his life where he's met with God. One of those, the very first one, probably the most significant, is when he was running away from Esau's threats, left home, left everything precious to him, and went to go find Laban. On the way there, he has a dream one night. And as he has that dream, it's a vision of a stairway to heaven and angels going up and down on that stairway. In the midst of that dream, he hears the voice of God. God speaks to him. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you back to this land. This land's going to be yours, and I'm going to use you to bless all the nations. 
Jacob said, that sounds pretty good to me. And uh, if God follows through on his part of the deal, then I guess I'm going to make him my God, and I'll even start tithing. You know a man has an experience with God if he starts tithing. The remarkable thing about this is that even after this encounter with God and this remarkable encounter through a dream, Jacob is still unchanged. He's the same old Jacob. And here he is now fighting with God himself, wrestling with the Lord. And dear ones, it is absolutely terrifying to realize that I can have numerous experiences with God and never be changed. I can be just like Jacob, the same old cheat, the same old deceiver, the same old con man, the same old trickster. So during this long night, he's still thinking what he's always thought. I can take care of myself. I can manage my life. I don't need anybody to help me. And if I really get in a bind, I can get God. I'll make a deal with God. And God will take care of me and help me out of the tough spots. You know how many people live that way? You know how many of us maybe sitting here are living that way? And that was fine until God did something that was entirely unexpected. God did something that Jacob did not expect. In verse 25 it says, Now when he, God, when the Lord saw that he did not prevail against him, he did something. And see, when you and I are wrestling with God, he may let you go one time, he may let you go one time, he may let you go another time. But listen, if you are serious about knowing God, if you are truly his child... He's not going to let you go on like that forever. And the stakes are going to get higher. The pressure is going to be more intense. And if that doesn't work, if that doesn't work, listen, there are limits to God's patience. And when he saw he wasn't getting anywhere with Jacob, and he had done all kinds of things, he had been forced to leave home and depend on God. He didn't depend on God. He had been in a situation with Laban, and he matched wits to try to outsmart Laban, and he still didn't change. All this had gone on. He still had never changed. And so God saw he wasn't changing. He was not prevailing with him, so what does he do? He reaches out, he touches his hip, and immediately he's crippled. Jacob learned two things right away. I can't win a fight with God. The second thing is God doesn't fight fair. I can't win a fight with God, and God doesn't fight fair. The moment God touched him, it deformed a muscle, a tendon. We don't know the details. It deformed a muscle or a tendon, and it caused him to be instantly crippled. And Jacob realized the power of the one he had been fighting and that he had been a fool. And so God had reached his limit with him. And and he touched him, and he crippled him, not because he hated him, not because he was his enemy, but because he loved him. What is he going to have to do? If you are beginning, you're sitting here, you're thinking, you're listening, you're thinking, you know, I sound a lot like Jacob. What is he going to have to do to bring you to a place where you will stop fighting with him? This realization was life-changing for Jacob. It was so life-changing that he told his kids about it. He said, I used to fight with God. One night God wrestled with me. He touched my hip. I couldn't fight him anymore. It changed my life. He told his kids. Their kids told their kids. Their kids told their kids. When you read verse 32, it says, For generations they would not eat a certain part of a goat or a cow 
or a lamb. They wouldn't eat it because they were remembering this story of what God did in Jacob's life. It changed him profoundly, and everyone around him knew it. Have you made this discovery about God? You can't fight with him. You can't argue with him. You think you can manage? You think you can control? You think you can figure your way out of any problem, any kind of situation that you have until something happens like happened to Jacob and it leaves you totally exposed, totally vulnerable, totally helpless? God is trying to change you. And he's not your enemy. And you can't win. And so I learned I don't always know I'm fighting God. And I learned that fighting for the win is an illusion. It can never happen. But then the third lesson I learned is this. The fighting ends when God defeats my greatest enemy, me. The fighting ends when God defeats my greatest enemy, me. Listen to the second part of verse 26. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And everything now has changed in Jacob's life. He was never the same man after this. Now, he was going to have a lot more to learn. God was going to teach him much more. His own sons were going to deceive him. He was going to experience deception and treachery from his own family for the rest of his life. But God was at work in Jacob's life, and Jacob was at a brand new place in his relationship with the Lord. He's crippled now. And so he can't fight anymore. So what's he doing? He's not fighting. If you read the text carefully, he's just hanging on. <laughs> he's just hanging on. He's not fighting anymore. He's just clinging to the Lord. For all he's worth, he won't let him go. He's moved from open defiance to desperate reliance. He's moved from open defiance to desperate reliance. The morning is coming. The Lord says, let me go. You can't see my face. And as we read that, that text, if you're paying attention or not paying attention, it's easy to miss what's happening in this exchange of words between the Lord and between Jacob. And I want to paraphrase it. I wrote it down. This is what I believe is happening. This is what he's saying. Jacob is desperate. He's hanging on. He can't fight anymore. He's crippled. And now, instead of being stronger at the end of the prayer time, <laughs> he is weaker than he ever was. Have you ever had an experience with God where you said, oh, God, I need your help to survive this moment. I need your help to get through this moment. And then God does something, and you're worse off than you were when you start, than before you started praying. That's where Jacob was. So Jacob is saying, I'm hanging on. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. I've given up. I'm not fighting. I surrender. God, I need you. I can't face life anymore without you. I can't let you leave now. I need to know that you are with me, that I am not alone, and that I am not on my own. I need you to bless me. I need to know that you are going to take care of me. So what does the Lord do? 
He says, all right. He says, tell me your name. Now, do you think the Lord asked him his name because he didn't know who he was wrestling with? No. And Jacob said, my name is Jacob. And if you just breeze right through that, you're going to miss what was happening, what God was doing. He says, what's your name? And for the first time in his life, Jacob was admitting to God what he was and what he really was. My name is Jacob. I am a deceiver. I am a liar. I am a con man. I am a sneak. It wasn't just telling God his name. It was a confession. You see, God wants to do a work in your life. He cannot and will not do that work until you are honest with yourself and God about who you really are. And so who are you? What is your name? What is your name? Is it rebel? Is it liar? Is it gossip? Is it adulterer? Is it thief? What is your name? It's no wonder we don't want to be transparent with one another, tell people what we really are, what we really struggle with. It took Jacob to come to the absolute end of himself before he would even tell God what he really was, what he was like. So that's why the biggest battle, the toughest battle you and I will ever have will be with God. He's wanting to reach deep inside you and me, and he's wanting to destroy a spirit of self-determination, a spirit of self-preservation. He wants to bring you and I to a place until we become not a Jacob but an Israel, someone who will rest in him, someone who will trust him, someone who will yield to him, let him fill us up to make us what he made us to be, someone who would make him known to a world that does not know him. That's the only way Jacob could bless the nations is if he was filled up with God. It's the only way Jacob could be used to bless anyone. At the end of his life, he's leaning on his staff before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet. You ought to read that dialogue. It tells you a whole lot about how Jacob has changed. But the problem is that self, myself, yourself, doesn't want anything to do with that. I don't want anybody to know my name. I don't want anybody to know what I'm really like. But when you stop fighting, guess what God does? He gives you a new name. God gives you a new name. And the new name described what God had done in Jacob's life. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, which means God rules, God commands, God prevails, God wins. And then as a rationale for that name, he says, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now that's puzzled a lot of scholars. Because they don't understand why the name is focused on what God has done, but in the rationale it describes what he has done. Did he prevail against God? Do you see what the Lord is saying? He says, you fought me and you lost. You fought me and you lost. But listen, Jacob, your loss was the greatest victory of your life. Losing everything was the greatest victory of your life. 
You're lost to me, that circumstance you hated, that time when you thought I was against you, that time when you thought I was coming to you as your enemy, I was coming to you as your friend, and that was your blessing. I was at work to bring you into an entirely new way of living, not one where you are independent of me and where you just call on me to come and bail you out once in a while in life, but I have called you to a life where you're totally dependent on me for everything, every moment of every day. Your name is now Israel. So do you see it? You see what happens? The day breaks. The man's been blessed. But now he comes into camp. And his clothes are all tattered, dirty. His body is bruised. and He's got cuts. And he's obviously been bleeding. And his hair is all messed up. And the people run up to him and they say, Jacob, Jacob, are you okay? And he smiles at them with a big grin. He says, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. And by the way, you don't need to call me Jacob anymore. You need to call me God wins. (laughs) My name is Israel. My name is Israel. And so going into the worst day of his life, going into the scariest day of his life, a day when he thought he would need all of his wits, all of his talents, all of his strength, all of his abilities in order to prevail and survive meeting with Esau, going into the worst day of his life, he's now going into that day with nothing but a limp and the presence of God. That's it. Nothing but a limp and the presence of God. Here's the bottom line. My greatest win in life will depend on which battle I lose. My greatest win in life will depend on which battle I lose. Are you fighting God? Are you still trying to run your life? Are you in a struggle right now, a circumstance you don't understand? You understand what God is doing? You think God, if he's there at all, he's against you, he's not your friend, he's your enemy? Do you know that God made you to depend on him? That God doesn't want to leave you as a Jacob who is self-sufficient and independent of him. He wants to make you an Israel. That God is bringing things into your life. He's bringing things into your circumstances to transform you, to change you, to make you more of what he wants you to be and less of what you have been. The greatest day of your life will come when you stop resisting God and start trusting him. Can I ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response, an opportunity that we give each week, where as an act of worship, you can take a moment to turn to the Lord in your heart and say, oh God, how does this apply to my life? See, whenever you and I hear the Word of God taught or preached, doesn't matter who's doing the preaching or the teaching, God uses His Word. And maybe you already know how God is speaking to you, and you already know what God is saying to you. And you find yourself in one of the great wrestling matches of your life, and you realize now what's going on that God's not against you, He's trying to bring you someplace.
trying to take you someplace, trying to change you. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that you are cut off from the God that loves you, that your sins are condemning you, that your destiny is eternity without God, without his love, in a place called hell. This morning, if you realize that you are a sinner, every person here is a sinner, and that your sins deserve punishment, then you'll appreciate the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he is the Savior who took your place, and he took your punishment on himself. And we treat that so lightly, but Christ took what you deserve for himself, and he died for those things that you did. And God, to show that there was forgiveness possible, raised him from the grave, And Jesus lives today as the Lord of every person that puts their trust in him. And so this morning, I want to invite you, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, to wash your sins away, I invite you to come and do that. But listen, when you trust him to do that, you're also asking him to come into your life and to change you. And you struggled before, but now you're going to have new kinds of struggles as he begins to change you and mold your life and make you the kind of person that depends on him the kind of person that will allow him to live his life in you and show himself through you to others. I invite you to come. Trust Christ. There will be other pastors standing here at the front. They're here to counsel with you, to answer your questions. And then if you just need someone to pray with you, you're in that struggle, you're wrestling, you know, you know it's God. And you know he's speaking to you. I invite you either there in the pew just to pray. And so, God, I surrender. Oh, God, I surrender. I want you to be the master. I want you to be the Lord. I want you to call the shots. You can come down at the front, kneel at the front, bring a friend with you. Maybe there's someone that's on your heart that you're praying for. You can come and pray for them here. As God leads, how will you respond to him? Father, Thank you. We commit this time to you. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.